and we felt it was necessary to ensure that there was a CPR trained uh, resident in the building. On tonight's KRBD Evening Report, a push to certify more of Ketchikan's Filipino residents in CPR, plus non-resident deer hunters in the ABC Islands will be limited to two bucks. And Chilcat Weavers in Juno work to finish child-sized robes for a ceremonial dance. All that and more coming up. First, let's take a look at the weather. Tonight, numerous rain showers, lows around 40, and southeast winds to 15 miles an hour. Tomorrow, rain with highs around 40 and southeast winds to 15 miles an hour. Tomorrow night, rain, lows around 40, and southeast winds to 15 miles an hour. Saturday, rain, highs in the mid-40s, and east winds to 10 miles an hour. Saturday night, rain likely, lows in the mid-30s, and light winds. It's the KRBD Evening Report. I'm Reagan Miller. A CPR class coming to Ketchikan this month is aiming to certify Filipino residents. The Ketchikan Wellness Coalition class aims to ensure residents can help their neighbors or family members in an emergency. That's a skill even more necessary in two of Ketchikan's biggest department buildings, where it's difficult or impossible to access a defibrillator. The Ketchikan Wellness Coalition is celebrating National Heart Health Month with an upcoming CPR class. Alma Parker leads the coalition's Strengthening Cultural Unity Task Force. She says this class specifically targets Filipino residents who speak multiple languages. If a bilingual person is CPR certified, Parker says they can help others who don't speak English while waiting for first responders in an emergency. Having bilingual in different dialects would also be ideal because Tagalog is the national language, but there are so many different dialects of uh, those who are from the Philippines. So that would be in the perfect world. In particular, the coalition wants to see more CPR certified Filipino people in Ketchikan's biggest apartment buildings, Tongas Towers and Marine View condominiums. A majority of the residents in both buildings are of Asian descent, according to 2020 census data, and together they're home to about 30% of Ketchikan's Asian American community. So those are uh, highly dense, uh, highly dense populations of Filipinos live there, and we felt it was necessary to ensure that there was a CPR trained uh, resident in the building. So in case there is an emergency we would um, be able to find and locate individuals who are CPR trained. Um, I also don't even know if there's an AED in these buildings as well. An AED is an automated external defibrillator. It's a device that allows people with just a bit of training to shock someone's heart back into rhythm. Neither of the two buildings has one, according to Ketchikan Fire Department officials, nor are they required to, but they can make it dramatically more likely that someone survives after their heart stops. For every minute that someone goes without a defibrillator, their chances of survival go down about 10%, according to the Red Cross. Ketchikan Fire Department Chief Rick Hines says CPR is the best way to keep someone alive until there's an AED available. Uh, And it's in hopes of keeping blood circulating, keeping the heart oxygenated and irritated enough that it will stay in that rhythm uh, until an AED can get there or a defibrillator can get there and try to shock them. Hines says every second counts. Typically, he would expect first responders to make it to one of the buildings from the downtown station in roughly six minutes. But that doesn't count the time it takes to get the crew and equipment to the right floor. Some of the things to factor in is uh, elevator availability, uh, how long it takes to call the elevator, how many stops the elevator makes going up to the floors. Uh, And that certainly can make the time to make it to the top floor of that building longer than the time it takes to actually respond to that building. That's one of the reasons the Wellness Coalition is working to certify more residents. 
and Parker says a similar CPR class last month yielded promising results. Last month, our first CPR class was held at the plaza that um, we recruited and um, solicited people to come and join the class that were of Filipino descent who specifically spoke um, Tagalog so we could have some bilingual CPR, fully trained first aid and CPR um, community members in our lovely town of Ketchikan. So Parker says it's important that as many people as possible arm themselves with the knowledge to save their neighbors' and family members' lives. The more certified residents, the better. Having one in a high-rise such as Marine View or Tongas Towers, it would be difficult if, you know, that person's at work or or whatnot. So having multiple um, individuals um, in those locations being trained would be ideal. During the last class hosted by the coalition, eight Filipino residents became CPR certified. Four of those people also spoke Tagalog. Some were kids, and Parker says she'd like to see more young people in future classes. Parker says she's surprised there aren't AEDs in the two buildings. She says the coalition's health equity programs, like the Sama Sama Tayo program, might be able to help. It really is something that um, having AEDs, knowing how to properly use them, is a goal of the Wellness Coalition, and particularly in this this grant that we are working under to ensure healthcare access and um, in our community is equal for everyone. She says trying to place AEDs in the building is something her organization would consider, but the devices also need upkeep and maintenance. So in the meantime, the coalition is pushing hard to get the life-saving knowledge of CPR into the hands of as many people as possible. The next CPR class is February 19th from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. in the Ketchikan High School Library. It costs $80 to receive a certification for CPR and using an AED on adults and infants. Anyone can register, but preference is given to bilingual Filipino people living in Tongas Towers or Marine View condominiums. Alaska's Board of Game voted last month to limit non-resident deer hunters to two bucks in one of the most prolific units in southeast Alaska. The decision came a day after the board had declined to reduce the sport bag limit from six to four deer in the same region. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The state has made it clear there is not a problem with the deer population in Game Management Unit 4. Rather, there is a people problem. Jake Fletcher is a board member from Talkeetna who brought Proposal 10 back for reconsideration on Monday, January 23rd, just a day after the Board of Game had unanimously voted to keep the sport bag limit at six deer for hunters on Admiralty, Baranoff, and Chichikoff Islands, the so-called ABC Islands. Um, as the department stated earlier, you know, there's, there's not, a, not a biological concern on over-harvest of this population, but um, I think that it's going to reduce user conflict. I think that under certain weather conditions, certain bays get incredibly crowded. Uh, maybe a uh, uh, non-residents coming into conflict with, with residents, and I think that, that this really addresses that problem. Sitka, Angoon, and Huna are the largest communities in the ABC Islands, but hunters from Juneau can make it down by boat or float plane if the weather is good. While there are special harvest restrictions around Huna, which has a developed road system, the remainder of Unit 4, with thousands of miles of forest and shoreline, is available for any sport hunter hoping to fill six tags. Unit 4 is not being overrun by out-of-state hunters. As adf and biologist Steve Bethune puts it, non-resident hunting on the ABC Islands is adjunct to resident hunting or to guided hunts for brown bear. There's not a whole lot of non-resident 
deer hunters in Unit Four, uh, and very few that are very few that are guided. I would say there there are very few guides that take deer hunters specifically. It's usually an add-on to a, a fall brown bear hunt. Uh, certainly, there are a few deer hunters, but uh, generally, it's an add-on. And I think we talked about earlier how um, most of the non-resident hunters in Unit Four are friends and family of people who live uh, in Unit 4 and are, are just coming up. So they're probably staying uh, with their friends and family or they're staying on uh, most of the guided hunts or, or large boat-based hunts, and so they're staying uh, on, on those vessels. Just the day before, the Board of Game had voted down Proposal 10, which would have cut the sport bag limit for deer on the ABC Islands from 6 to 4. A second similar proposal was withdrawn by its author. Both proposers are active sport hunters in the area, concerned that although the deer population was abundant at the moment, a heavy winter or two could easily change that. Resurrecting Proposal 10 and substituting a two-buck limit for non-residents in place of the overall bag limit reduction seemed like a nod toward compromise, especially for subsistence hunters in Huna, who feel the most pressure from out-of-town sport hunters. The board took the additional step of lowering the non-resident limit in the Huna controlled use area as well. Board Chair Jerry Burnett thought this was a reasonable approach. We heard from the department that this would make it uniform across the entire unit for the non-residents. Makes sense. On reconsideration, the State Board of Game unanimously adopted an amended version of Proposal 10, which now limits the harvest of black-tailed deer by non-residents to two bucks in Unit 4. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. There are about a dozen Chilkat weavers in Juneau this week. They're working five or more hours a day trying to finish up intricate child-sized robes that will be worn by local children while they dance a ceremonial dance. KTOO's Yvonne Crummery has their story. The weavers are apprentices of local weaver Lily Hope. During the pandemic, she offered classes virtually. If you say Chilkat robe, raise your hand. What if if you say both? Should we raise our hands? But now, they're together in person. The children's robes they're working on are detailed and time-consuming. But it takes two years or more to make an adult-sized one. So the smaller ones are both a practical consideration and also really special. They'll be worn by local children at the end of this workshop. There are about a dozen weavers in the room laughing and joking with each other while their hands are tangled up in yellow, blue, black, and white yarn the traditional colors of Chilkat weaving. The robes they're working on are at different stages, but most are nearly done. Sakoon Dunedin Jackson is here from Alberta, Canada. She started her robe from home by watching Lily Hope's videos. She spun the yarn and hung it on the loom and began weaving. But on a road trip last summer, she got in an accident, and the blanket, as well as everything in her camper van, burned in the wreck. The only reason I was able to participate at all is because um, it's Jody's daughter. Um, she gifted me her auntie's yarns, who had passed. So it is absolutely a, um, a project of, of love and support of this entire community. She was able to restart the robe and thinks she'll finish in time for the first dance. It's not like joining a crochet group. Right? Yeah. It's, um, it's more, more. There's culture and there's, there's the spiritual aspect of it. I think it makes it, it's what changes it from art to, to a living being. The design for her robe is from Hope's late mother, Clarissa Rizal. 
It was the last child-sized robe she designed. It doesn't have clan affiliations. She wanted to use a design that was, quote, open source, so that children with any clan affiliation could dance in them. Ganesha Karen Tog started weaving in 1984, but she put it on hold after having five children. The robe she's working on is her first big weaving piece, and she's glad to be in good company for it. You get stuck like on a circle. You know, there's so many people to ask. You know. Plus, Lily does the videos, but still it's nice to interact with all the other ladies because you learn little tricks of the trade. She plans to have her grandson dance in the robe, which shows the face of a fisherman and his two grandchildren in profile turned towards him in the center. Growing the number of Chilkat weavers is important, Hope said in an earlier interview. Over the last 120 years, fewer than a dozen Chilkat blanket makers or robe weavers um, existed at any given point. We are changing that story this week. All these weavers send a message about the status of Chilkat weaving today. My goal really is to let the world know that we're still making Chilkat robes, we're still weaving our history, we're still telling our stories, yeah, we're still here alive and well. The robes will be on display at the Juno Douglas City Museum until the end of February. In Juno, I'm Yvonne Crumry. The first dance for these robes was yesterday. See Alaska Heritage Institute has a video of the dance on its YouTube channel. Tomorrow, the robes will be displayed at the Juno Douglas City Museum. That's it for this edition of the KRBD Evening Report. You can get this show as a podcast on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get it on your smart speaker. Just ask it to play the KRBD Evening Report. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Reagan Miller.